Good morning, Springville. To those of you in person and also those joining online, it is great to be with you this week. And although I couldn't be there in person, it's great to be able to use uh, platforms like this to be able to connect all the way from Montreal. And uh, it is an honor to be able to jump into the series that you have been in for several weeks, looking specifically at the big picture of Scripture. And uh, if you remember from last week, looking specifically at the call of the prophet Ezekiel. And he was speaking specifically to the leadership of of Israel and Rocky did a great job kind of catching us up and pulling some themes forward in the story of the biblical arc and the narrative. And this week, just to remind you of the context as we look again at Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a prophet of Israel specifically during the time of exile, specifically the Babylonian exile. And that was from about 590 BC to about 570, cover the years of his ministry as a prophet. And he kind of documents, gives us a play-by-play of that period of time, specifically trying to help Israel understand why they are displaced from the land, why they are in exile. And the, the biblical story shows us that after being kind of a wandering nomadic people in the desert, that Israel finally gets the land that they were promised as God covenants himself to Abraham. But then they lose that land. They lose that land because they do not follow through on their covenant obligations and agreement with the Lord. And that brings us to where we are here. And all the way through Ezekiel, as he's working his prophetic ministry, speaking the word of God to the people of God, he's trying to get them to understand why they are where they are. Why they are not enjoying kind of the homeland, being at home, being a light to the nations, being in covenant, worshiping God in the land. Why did that happen? So we're gonna try to see exactly what Ezekiel points to to show us that and then apply some things this morning to our modern day. Watch what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verse 18 through 21. So God speaking here through Ezekiel. So I poured out my anger, I was angry, and I poured out my wrath upon them for two things, the blood that they had shed in the land and for the idols with which they had defiled the land. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through all the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. What they did, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them because of that, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Now there's a lot going on in this text, but I wanna point our attention to specifically what Israel did. Notice God doesn't start and say that their theology was wrong. He doesn't start and say, well, it's some beliefs in your head that's wrong. Therefore, because of your incorrect theology, I'm gonna get rid of you. He actually speaks specifically of their deeds, of the way that they're living, their lifestyle. Their ethical conduct is off. It's disconnected from what they know to be right beliefs about the God who has actually saved them, the God who has pursued them, the God who has redeemed them. And he mentions two symptoms of that, and that is bloodshed amongst themselves and other people and idols. Bloodshed and idols. And right away, this hyperlinks us back to the garden. It hyperlinks us back to the garden to show us that this bloodshed horizontally between people 
and idolatry vertically between God and people is actually a reversal of how things were meant to be. A reversal of the proper vertical relationship between man and woman, humanity, and God, and horizontally between people. Peace, no bloodshed, only a flourishing of life, not a destruction of life. And we see that in this bloodshed, we see a brokenness horizontally, and we see idolatry, a brokenness vertically. And if we can sum up all of Ezekiel, not just this passage, but all of Ezekiel's entire prophetic ministry, he kind of is a one-trick pony. He kind of preaches the same sermon over and over and over again. And that is to Israel, stop trusting in idols. Stop looking to non-gods to give you what only God can because it destroys everything. So what does God do? Well, he gives them over to what they think they want. Why? To discipline them, to show them what they truly need. And often God will speak of himself as a parent with a father, fatherly and motherly maternal role over Israel as he cares for them. And I can just, as a parent, I can see kind of God's heartache in this, where he's actually disciplining his sons and daughters. He's disciplining Israel. And it almost hurts him more than it hurts them. But he's disciplining them so that they would see that they have really run to the end of themselves. They have given their lives over to things that are not God, thinking that they will provide what only God can. So God lovingly, in his grace, disciplines them by handing them over to that. And we see the kind of displacement and destruction that happens because of that. So we want to understand what this kind of idolatry is, what idolatry actually is. And often right away, you kind of think of like statues and stuff, right? Throughout the Old Testament, it's like, oh, they're bowing down to Baal and and other statues and they're going after stuff. And it's like, well, that is, on a surface level, that truly is, that is what idolatry leads us to. But that's only the surface level that gets us deeper to the real cause of those symptoms. Theologians for many years in the Christian tradition have called idolatry the sin behind every other sin or the sin beneath the sin. It's not actually about statues and stuff at all. Idolatry is about what we look to and trust in to give us security and safety and satisfaction. And actually a few chapters back in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel says that Israel had taken idols, not into their hands, but into their hearts. That's where idolatry starts. That's where idolatry truly happens. It's a change of our heart. It's that we actually look for our identity and value and worth in things that ultimately the Bible shows us will not match up, cannot bear the weight of our person, will not give us the value and satisfaction and security and safety that really is only truly found in the one who made us, and that is God himself. And if you back way up and look at the big picture of scripture, kind of the meta 30,000 foot up version of that, the whole Bible points us to this reality that non-gods always over-promise and under-deliver. That non-gods offer peace, promise peace and prosperity and fulfillment, 
but only lead to self-destruction and brokenness and isolation. And this is important to understand when we talk about idolatry that we're not just talking about a religious activity for religious people. We're not just talking about people who consider themselves spiritual. We're talking about being image bearers. And in the story of the Bible, there's no such thing as a worshiper and a non-worshiper. It's not about being religious or non. It's not a religious activity for religious people to worship. That's not what's happening here. But we actually see that worship is what we give ourselves over to and trust in for security and satisfaction. Everyone is a worshiper. We can't help ourselves because we were designed to do exactly that. And if there's anything that Genesis shows us, it's that human beings, man and woman, were created, they were set apart, they were created quite differently in the Genesis story than everything else that was created. They were kind of put there as the crown jewel, the cherry on top, and that they were set apart, they were made different, or in another way of saying it, they were made holy. Why? Well, because they were image bearers. There's something about humanity that is like God. There's something about this moral and ethical and relational and communal thing about humanity that actually does reflect the good God of creation. And as image bearers, we were designed and made, we were hardwired to actually act as little mirrors reflecting into creation what our creator God is like. And it's what we admire. It's what we look to that ultimately is our object of worship. So it's not about religion. It's not about beliefs. It's functionally and practically, what is it? What is that, that end that the means of our life goes to and leads us to that we look to something, some accolade, some version of success, some type of lifestyle or that romantic relationship or that marriage or those kinds of kids, like those things will satisfy us. Those things will give us peace. And we see the same problem in the garden where sin enters the picture, it actually inverts this. It inverts everything. Sin enters in and rather than reflect our creator and trust his definition of right and true and good and beautiful, we turn inwards and start to look and define what is right and good and true for ourself. We stop looking to our creator God to do that and instead we look to created things chiefly ourself to tell us who we are and who we should be. So when we look at the root of sin here, and we see that idolatry is the sin beneath the sin, we see that the core problem of humanity isn't that we do bad things. It's that we actually live for good things. It's not that we do bad things sometimes. It's that we live and settle for good things ultimately all the time. And so good things, good things, not bad things, good things like family, good things like possessions and money and, and success, good things like ro romance and sexuality and approval or significance and recognition. Those are, those are beautiful things. Those give us joy in life. But if those become the main thing, that's when they be become an idol. That's when they tell us to devote our time and our energy and our mind and our thoughts and ultimately our life to them. And they cannot bear the weight of us as image bearers. And that's really important to see. That no thing, no person, no level of success, no created thing, no romantic relationship, no person, no, no church, no community, no cause, no political leader 
will ever fail to let us down. They cannot live up to your and my expectations. Ultimately, they will let us down. They can't bear the weight of our image-bearing status. Christopher Wright, he's an Old Testament theologian, says it seems like, speaking of the story of the Bible, it seems that we never learn that false gods never fail to fail. (laughs) And that's kind of the story of the Bible, but also the story of history. And it's kind of your story and mine too, where God will lovingly allow us to run to the end of ourselves to go after things that he knows will not satisfy us. But he knows that he's disciplining us to see that that was not what we were truly looking for. That we thought that we wanted that thing, but he allows us to go after that, to run to the end of ourselves, to realize that it is he himself, that God himself is what we truly needed. And I think this is the backdrop of what Ezekiel is reminding them of. And I think a failure to obey in the present often is a failure to remember the past. And that's what God is doing through the prophet. He's saying, like, do you remember what I did, who I am, what I am like? But it's not just Israel. What's true of Israel in this text is also true of of all of us. That there's one thing that's kind of just screaming out of the page here to you and I in our modern day is that we underestimate the danger of idols. We underestimate the allure to non-gods. We underestimate the supersized appetite of our own hearts for immediate gratification and independence from God. That's, that's, it's a dangerous, subtle thing. And our culture is full of idols, full of options that are just beckoning us, calling us, inviting us to come and live our life for that thing, for that pursuit, for that end. John Tyson is a pastor in Manhattan. He calls sex, power, and money the idolatrous trinity of our culture's ethical vision. I think that's brilliant. And I think he's right that sex, power, and money are definitely at the fore of the idols on offer for you and I to go and live for and give our life to. But I also think that there's a more subtle, dangerous idol hiding actually beneath all three of those, and that's the idolatry of the self. And that's not new either. We saw in Genesis that when we stop looking out, outside of ourselves to God to tell us who we are, and we turn inward on the self, that what happens is we have a tragic exchange where we dethrone God, we enthrone self, and in the process, we break everything. We devalue God by dethroning him and we devalue self by enthroning ourself and everything breaks down. We self-destruct when we try to look for life apart from God and rather than live life under God's perfect rule as image bearers, we build a self-image on everything but God and independent from him. And if there's anything that's the centerpiece of our Western culture, especially our Western cultural moment, it's, it's the self. So things that just kind of float around in the water that we swim in. Self-esteem and self-image are primary. Self-fulfillment, self-help, self-empowerment and self-love. We hear these things all the time, but what we have to realize is that the self is primary. It comes before love. It comes before fulfillment. It comes before help. That we can, we're told that we can actually create ourselves. We can create a new version of ourselves. That we can manifest something out of ourselves. Because if we would only look deep enough inside us, then we would, we'd be awesome. 
we'd, we'd live life, we'd be fulfilled, we'd be satisfied. The message of scripture and the message that Ezekiel is pushing into Israel and offering to you and I is that that is not true and it will only disappoint. And so the impact of this kind of cultural sermon that we're constantly preached is that we live primarily as individuals, not in community. We don't belong to anybody. I mean, if we do, it's because we signed up for it because of an interest of myself, right? We prioritize personal desires and interests and goals and milestones. We get to decide where we live, what job we get or don't get, how we spend our money, our time, our energy, how we, what we do with our body because it's my body. And we do all that based on how it's gonna impact me. So I just do me and you do you, whatever that means. It's good for you, that's good. If it's good for me, it's, it's good for me. There's no authority outside of us that tells us that me isn't at the center. This is the functional idol of our culture. And we need to understand that this is not just a problem out there. This is a problem in here. It's not just a problem outside the church. It's like, oh, culture. But it seeps in. And if we're not careful, we will also need to really hear the strong call of what it looks like to profane God's reputation. Because the gospel shows up, church, and it is a radically different message than the culture of self. It is a radically different message and invitation than the teleprompter that our culture reads from. Whereas our culture shows up and says, you can do anything you put your mind to. Jesus shows up and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Whereas culture shows up and says, live your truth. Jesus shows up and says, I am the truth. Whereas culture comes and says, live your life. You only live once, live it up. Jesus shows up and says, lose your life and then you'll find it and live forever. You see how radically different this is. In a culture that says, follow your heart, be yourself, Jesus comes and says, your heart is deceitful and desperately sick, die to self. It is so different and so radical and revolutionary that if we're not careful, we'll actually stop living that out and be swept away by the narrative and the sermon of our culture without even realizing it. And if you notice what God's main concern in this text is, it's his reputation. It's his holy name, he says, that they're profaning my holy name. Now that just means slandering, that by their lifestyle that looks no different than the culture around them, they are misrepresenting me to the watching world. The church is full of this. Well, what's the big deal though? Like, like God could just like, well, I'm not about them. They're not about me. I'm just, I'm going to move on. No, no, but that's not what God does with his covenant relationship. That's not, that's not his, his, his commitments are real, unlike ours. And the big deal about his name is that in the ancient context, a name wasn't just a name. You wouldn't just name a kid like a color, like we do today, and then throw it on Instagram, right? Like you, you name, your name is wrapped up in your character. Your character is wrapped up in your name. And so someone's name was their autobiography. It pointed to what they were like. And God does this over and over through scripture. Remember in Exodus 3, when he shows up and reveals himself to Moses and he names himself. But then later in Exodus 34, it's actually one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible over and over again. It's alluded to over and over again to remind us of what God is like. In Exodus 34, six through seven, God shows up and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, his name. That he's knowable, that he's nameable. 
That's good news. God's not just a mystery, just secretly hiding out, waiting for us to figure it out for ourselves. But he shows up and he says, this is what I'm like. He discloses a self-disclosure of his name and what he's like. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger that he's patient. And he's abounding in steadfast love, abounding in grace. That's good news. And a little bit later in Leviticus, he does the same thing. He says, I am Yahweh, that's my name. And I am holy, therefore be holy. Now, usually when we think about holiness, we think immediately about like a moral perfectionism, some kind of a moral code that we hold to, whether it's that we do certain things, you dress like this, you, you go to church like that, you volunteer like this, you read your Bible like this, you sit like this, whatever it is. Or it's like a list of things you don't do. Right, so you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those who do, right? You avoid sex outside of marriage, you don't swear, you don't get tattoos, you don't listen to secular music, and you don't watch good movies, like secular movies, right? And so often we think about holiness like that, but biblically it's much bigger than that. Then when God says he's holy, what he's saying is, I am like no other. That holiness means to be set apart, it means to be distinct, it means to be one of a kind, so properly understood, if that's the God of Israel, if that's the God of the New Testament church and our God in Christ, then that means that the people of God should also be marked by distinction, should be marked by a non-conformity, should be marked by a moral and ethical resistance to the cultural norms. That the people of God actually should be modeling an alternative way of living, of thinking, of what we, what we do and don't do, of what we do with our bodies and don't do with our bodies. That we're a different kind of people all together, bound together by our worship of a different kind of God who is holy. But that comes with an outright rejection of the non-gods on offer from our culture. You see, I think what's happening here is that Israel was set apart but they were happy to fit in. They were made holy, but they were just looking to be happy. There was no resistance. It was only compromise everywhere. There was no resistance to the non-gods of the culture. There was no resistance to the idols of their day. They didn't think or act or speak or spend their money or do with their body or do in private or, or, or treat the internet any differently or treat their spare time any differently than anybody else around them. So God's saying, like, like I, I saved you, I set you apart, but you're no different than everybody else. So what are they going to think about me? They're going to think I have no power to change. They're going to think I have no power to save that's exactly what happens today in our culture if our witness is that we live barely different than anybody else. What we say about the God who we claim to know and claim to have saved us is that he doesn't actually have the power to change and the power to save. And it's very important, very important for us to understand this is not legalism. Holiness is not a call to be legalistic and to be a jerk. Holiness is a call to understand the nature and character of God so that he changes us from the inside out so that we would go and live our life as a billboard to a culture that doesn't know him. So holiness is not moral perfection. You're not gonna get there. I'm not gonna get there. But holiness is moral distinction. Notice we don't become holy. We don't muster it up. We're made holy. In other words, for you and I, you can't become a follower of Jesus and barely know. You with me on that? 
Like, like you can't become a follower of Jesus and it just fit in easily to how you lived before Jesus. So holiness today, like really, there should be some seriously revolutionary things. There should be some serious non-conformity in some of the ways that our culture does look at sex, power, and money. But often we look exactly the same. Barely different. Barely changed. And just hear me, if your, your goal in life is just to kind of live life, fit in, be cool, be accepted, be happy, Christianity isn't actually for you. And we, when we make Christianity that, what we've just done is we've replaced the true gospel with self. We've just used God as the means to the end of just self-actualization and self-fulfillment. And it is everywhere. And it's, it's subtle, but it's everywhere in the church, in our Western context too. So what does holiness look like for you and I today? Well, holiness and its non-conformity and its resistance to kind of like the ethical norms of our day, it, me, it looks like fighting for sexual purity and self-control and restraint in a culture that's completely given over to the hypersexualization and pornification of our culture. It looks like honesty and humility and, and, and a servant heart in how we portray ourselves, whether it's in person or online. It looks like intentionally pursuing relationships and friendships and proximity with, with people who are just different. Outsiders, the strangers, the foreigners. Instead of sitting online in our echo chambers, surrounding ourselves with people who are exactly like us, who think like us, who dress like us, who live like us, and who vote like us. It looks like prioritizing generosity in a culture of accumulation and materialism. And it looks like humble submission to one another, regardless of our accolades and our degrees and our titles, but out of service for one another, especially in a culture that's just pushing to the front of the line all the time, trying to clamor for attention and power and influence and rights. That's what holiness looks like today. So how do we experience this? How does God do it in Ezekiel? Well, let's see what he says in verse 24 through 27 and watch what God says about this problem and what he's gonna do about it. I will take you, I love this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. See the problem? I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to live in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice who does this work. It's not you. It's not me. And that's just the gospel, church. That is just the gospel that God actually pursues his enemies, that he actually pursues you and me while we pursue everything but him. And he chases us down and he rescues us and he, he lavishes grace upon us to show us that it's despite us that he saves us. That he's the one that does this. That he gives Israel a new heart. That he gives them a new mind. That he puts his spirit in them. And of course, this is prophesying and pointing us way forward in the big picture of the story to Jesus coming and being God in flesh, incarnating himself into creation. Creator stepping into creation. The God who is outside of space-time, stepping into space-time as a man to save every man and woman. He does it. And the only thing you and I bring to the table is the idolatry 
the false worship and the disappointed hopes that we thought were gonna be found and fulfilled in other things. All we do is bring that. That's all we have to offer. That we come with, with empty hands and empty pockets. And the only thing that we bring to the table for the God that rescues and saves us is the fact that we have sin that requires saving and cleansing. And you know, if the, notice the language here that Ezekiel uses. He talks about sprinkling water and that kind of brings us back to the ritual purity system of Leviticus. And usually when there was water involved, it symbolized a ritual cleanness or a purity that was required to be in God's presence. And rather than the priest do it, notice that God says he's gonna do it. He's gonna sprinkle. But what's really interesting about the sprinkling aspect is that in this text, it's specifically the word that's used for the sprinkling of that clean water. It doesn't just refer, refer to purification to be in God's presence. It refers to being cleansed from touching a dead body. The required cleanliness that needs to happen, the purification rites that needs to happen from touching a dead body. What's the point there? Well, it means that without him breathing life into us, all we have is idols that promise life but only give death, that only leave us lifeless, that only disappoint and fail us and lead to destruction. That we need to be clean from that. We need to be cleansed from that pursuit by being given a new heart, by having a changed mind. And if you notice, Jesus obviously picks this language up in John 3 when he says, unless somebody is born again, of water and by the spirit, then they cannot enter the kingdom of God. So just like you and I didn't give birth to ourselves, we cannot give new birth to ourselves. That this gospel transformation, the God that comes and changes our heart, replaces hearts of apathy and numbness and desensitization with a heart of flesh beating full of life, full of passion for the things of God and not just deadened to that and desensitized to who he is because we're just totally given over to things that won't give us life. But he comes and gives us a new heart showing us that this change comes from the inside out. It's not manufactured from the outside in. It's not mustered up by ourselves, but it is totally a miraculous, powerful work of God in us first. The gospel is not about behavior modification just like sin isn't just about doing bad behaviors. It's about not just a change in what we do, it's about a change in what we want. It's a change from the inside out. And where idols and non-gods just destroy us from the inside out and take everything from us, Christ changes us and renews us from the inside out and gives us life. And it's awesome to see that Paul picks up this language also in Ephesians 4. And we don't have time to get into it in detail. But if you notice in Paul, in Ephesians 4, when he's talking to the church in Ephesus, he talks about this heart transfer, this, this heart transplant, this surgery that's gonna happen. That it was, they were blinded by the apathy of their heart and then they were given a new heart. And then he says this, so put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life. And it was corrupt through deceitful desires. Notice, not behaviors, desires. And instead to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness, that's the image, the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's really good news that we're invited to put off the old self and to take on the new self. Not something that we've created and manufactured, but something that's been given to us despite us by the work of God in the cross, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. 
And he does that through his Holy Spirit. He does that by giving us a new spirit, his spirit, animating our life and our body and our mind and our thoughts and our desires by his spirit in true holiness and righteousness, Paul says. So how can we respond to this? Well, just like that was on offer for Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, and Ezekiel promises and kind of prophesies forward to what Christ ultimately comes and does on our behalf, we are invited to come and take off our old self and put on the self that is in Christ, the true image of the living God, the very fingerprint of God in a person, Jesus Christ. And then he asks us just to come, deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow after him. So the question to us this morning is if we come and pick up the cross and follow Christ, what are we called to put down first? You know, in the Roman context, there was no comfortable way to carry a cross. And you were going to your death. You were going to your execution. And I think this is where we really see that loss is the best teacher. That we come and we put down all the things that we thought we wanted. That we thought would give us security. That we thought would fulfill us. And instead pick up the cross and follow after Jesus who promises to fulfill us. Who promises to give us life and life to the fullest. You see, in the gospel, it's in Christ that we are made new first and then we are made holy. And that's what's on offer for you and I this morning. So whether this is something you have responded to hundreds of times before, or this is your first time understanding that God's invitation to you is to put down all of the other things that you have been chasing after to give you life and to fulfill you, it's our opportunity to respond again in true worship of the true living God who gives us life. Let's do that now and respond in prayer together. Father, we're so thankful that it is in your name that we come and pray, that it is in the name above all names, in Jesus' name, that we come to you, that we come not in our own name or in our own power or in our own strength, but in your name, in your power and in your strength. And that we can on this side of the cross look back at the work that you have done on our behalf for us in the life, the death, the resurrection of your son and that you promise to come back one day, return and finish what you have started in the work of your kingdom. I pray for each of us that already know you and follow you that you would set us apart, that you would call us to holiness, that you would make us holy, that you would call us to this resistance of the idols of our day and that we would really follow after you in spirit and in truth, in true worship. And also those of us who have not responded to this yet, who maybe don't know you, Jesus, that today would be the day that they would put their hope and their trust in you, that they would put down all other objects of trust that they have been looking for, and that they would see that you are the only one who can actually deliver on the promise to give them life. We love you. We do need you. We ask that you would just make this true again in each of our hearts as you give us a new heart, as you renew our mind and you put your spirit in us. We ask all these things in the name above all names and in the name that, that it is so much more valuable than any other name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.